for listening to The Rivers Podcast. For more information on this teaching, visit our website at theriver.info. We are in, we're, we're still in the series, John. Rob Link is gone. He's teaching through John, I think, until the end of time is, is what he said. So he gave me a couple verses to preach on. I just think it's nice to have some hair on stage. The record, we'll delete that from the recording part, and none of you will say that. Um, and so we're in, we're still in John chapter 1, and let us begin in verse 35. This is a gospel message today. I'm going to channel, channel my inner gospel preacher. Are you ready? The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples when he saw Jesus Passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, what do you want? And they said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying and they spent the day with him. It was about four in the afternoon. I titled this sermon, Look Up, because John says, look up, the Lamb of God, when he looked up. I have my iPad here. And I want to begin by telling you a story about myself. When I was in college, I went to a super charismatic church. Anybody ever been to a super charismatic church? They didn't have snakes but they were super charismatic. Then they had a preacher. Let's um, call him, what's your name again? Ryan. Sorry, I forgot. We'll call him Ryan. And Ryan was like the most fiery preacher I had ever heard in my life. When he got up to preach, seriously, and I think, I don't know if it's like a southern thing or an eastern, western, or like you're from the moon, but when he got up to preach, he would be like, okay, uh, the Lord God uh, has come down from heaven, uh, and he's come because he loves you and me. I was like, how many times are you going to say, uh, bro? But he did it. The whole sermon, it was like, he loves you, uh, and he loves me, uh, and he has, he has power, uh, and he wants to be on your side uh, if you would just let him in. And I was like, after a while, you know, at first it's weird, but after a while you're like, all right. <laughs> you're like, this guy's got it, man. I want to be, be a fiery preacher. And you would go to this church, man, and the worship would play, and I would just feel the Holy Spirit. And it was in more than the uh. It was like I would feel the Holy Spirit when you're worshiping and one lady's waving a flag and somebody's dancing and there's new people who are like, where am I? You know, eyes wide open. And I'm just, I started to feel it after a while and I thought, I want to be like Pastor, Pastor Ryan, man. I want to be like Pastor Ryan because this guy, when he preaches, the word just hits me. 
And his church is just full of the Holy Spirit. And I want to be part of a church that is full of the Holy Spirit. And I want to, I want to, I want, that's what I want to do. I want to, I want to preach like him. And I want to be a part of a church where people just come in, man, and the Spirit starts moving. Their arms start shaking. They just, they're like, I don't even know what's happening with my arm, but it's, it's going. It must be the Holy Spirit. And people are getting set free and people are crying. And I wanted so badly to be a part of a church like that. And then the worship pastor had a moral failure. I got a little deeper into the organization and learned that people can be really, really mean to each other. And people would leave hurting, and they would come hurting, and they would get involved at a deep level, and their hearts would get hurt more. And if you didn't believe this way, then you weren't at this level. And then I just realized, man, the place, the place that I thought was like the place that God dwelled. Man, it's just like every other church. It's just like every other place. Like, and I became convinced that I, if I just... I had to stop just going from the next church to the next church because this one, I mean, this was it. This was the pinnacle. And if it wasn't going to meet my, meet my need, if, if it wasn't going to bring God to me, then no place could. And so I started to think, like, what, what's going to get me to that place? Like, what's going to get me to Pastor David? His name was not David. It was Ryan. the funniest things I say I never plan them and man scratch jokes it's like no jokes in this sermon just be yourself and you'll say some silly stuff but I just thought man if I could be like Pastor Ryan if I could get there somehow and so I thought you know what I'm 22 years old. I'm going to write a book. So I started to write a book, and I titled it Remembering a Forgotten Grace, available on Amazon. And I poured myself over this book for three years, and it was a book about shame, and it was a book about how when you look at yourself in the mirror, you can begin to see who God sees instead of who you see or who people have told you are, and it was a told you who you are, and it was about how if guilt is the belief that you've done something wrong, shame is the belief that you are the thing that is wrong, and God came to set you free from that, and I believed if I came out with this book, then people would come to me like they came to Pastor Ryan, and they would just want more and more and more of what I had to offer, and I would have followers, and I could lead them, and I could just fulfill God's call for my life, and then I remember the day that that 12 boxes of 500 copies of Remembering a Forgotten Grace were sitting in my apartment. And I thought, well, I'm still the same person. I still have the same junk. I still have the same issues. I still have the same sin. I didn't reach that status. And man, I wanted to be like Pastor Ryan, but I just, I I didn't get there. 
And man, I wanted that ideal, that ideal ministry, but I realized in that moment holding this book, I'm like, man, yeah, somebody could read this book. They might think it's a good book, but if they come to me, what do I have to offer them? I'm just a human like them. I'm just a broken, cracked human like them. What do I have to offer? And so we arrive at John. And, and John has his disciples following him. And his disciples are broken people. And his disciples want to be somebody. And his disciples want life to matter. And like some of you, many of you, his disciples are broken down. And they've been beat up by this earth. And they've been beat up by people. And they've been hurt by their expectations of what they think church should be. Or what they think a godly person should be. Or what they think they should be. And all of those have fallen flat because they've been let down by that church. They've been let down by those people. They've been let down by themselves. They've been let down by their own dreams. And yet here they are following John. John, give us some hope. John, give us some peace. And so John tries to lead them, right? It's like he starts John's church. I don't think he had the lights like this. I don't think he had the instruments. I don't think he had the hair. But it's John, and it's John's church, and he's got his disciples following him, and he tries to give them hope, and he tries to give them vision. But he learns very quickly that all of the hope that he can, can, can try to give them will pale in comparison to the pain that the broken world has already caused them. It's not even close to the, to the hurt that these people wade through every day, the mud that they walk through, the quicksand that they try to get out of. John has nothing for them. And yet this moment happens. And I think, honestly, I think John's a little bit like you and me. So here's how I relate it. People will want to follow you. You hearing me? People will want to follow you, and you'll probably want them to follow you. You'll say something smart. At some point in your life, you'll say something smart, and people will go, ooh, that was good. You'll say something witty. You, you might even find yourself standing on a stage like this saying something profound like deep, and people are going to want to follow you. And they're going to want to look to you, and they're going to want the answers from you. And they're going to think, if I could just reach out and touch that person or have a coffee with that person, everything in my life is going to kind of get realigned, and I'm going to understand if I could just know this person, if I could just be with this person, if I could just follow this person. And you know what? That feels good. Somebody's going to want to follow you. But even deeper than that, kind of even worse than that, you're going to want to follow somebody. You're going to want to follow them, man, because you're going to hear a preacher. You're going to read a book. You're going to listen to some sermon. You're going to face a temptation for much of your life to take a person and just raise them right up. And just put them right up there. Right, like at God's status. If I could just get like them, that person on YouTube shared that story about what they did with, 
with God, and if I could just get to them or be like them, then everything in my life's going to be cool. Everything's going to be all right. Everything's going to be smooth. If I could just write that book like this person, if I could just, like, you, that, that person, they're just so inspiring to me. They're just so intimate with the Lord. They just follow him so much. If I could just get to them, if I could just be like them, if I could just touch the hem of their garment, everything would be good. And you'll only do this to find that people, friends, will only let you down. How many of you know this? People will only let you down. Try to lean on them. Eventually they'll move. They want to follow their own dreams. They're not thinking about you. Try to lean on that human being. And they will let you down. And Pastor John of John's church with his disciples knows this very well. I'm yelling. Transitional drink. Pastor John knows this full well. He's a wise man. He knew he couldn't offer these disciples the hope they needed. He knew that even his greatest attempts to bring peace and hope and calling to another person would pale in comparison to the pain that this world has caused God's children. He knew that there was nothing he could say, nothing he could do that was going to bring healing, that was going to bring hope, that was going to bring destiny to the people around him that had been broken and hurting by the world. He knew he couldn't do it. So he canceled John's church. And he looks up. This is the exciting part. And he looks up. And he sees Jesus. And then he says, look, the Lamb of God. Why would you say that, John? Look, the Lamb of God. You see, friends, the first time Lamb is used in the narrative of the Bible is in Genesis 21. Abraham digs a well. And when he digs this well, for some reason, he needs to prove that what he said he was going to finish was actually finished. That he was the one who dug this well. So he puts in all this work to dig this well, and then this guy Abimelech comes over and says, hey, you got to prove that you dug that well. And Abraham says, okay, I will. And the way that I will prove to you that I dug this well that, the, I, that I kept my promise that I would do it and that I would finish it is I will now give you seven lambs. To which Abimelech says, okay, that's good, that'll work. I don't understand the logic. <laughs> but he gives him seven lambs. And it proves that what was said was going to be done was done. And in that moment, the lamb becomes the fulfillment of the promise. The lamb becomes the, this is where you say amen. The lamb becomes the fulfillment of the promise. The lamb becomes the thing that when God says, I'm going to do something, or when Abraham says, I'm going to do something, and I promise you it's going to get finished, here's a lamb. This means it's going to get finished. Last week and the week before, Rob talked about sheep and goats, right? 
He talked about goats and the scapegoat. There is a big difference between lambs and goats in the Bible. There is a big difference in the, in the whole narrative and the central theme of the Bible. When you're dealing with a goat, you're dealing with something that ultimately is going to be separated from God. The sheep and the goats, he separates them. You're dealing with something that everybody throws their sin on and it takes their sin and then they walk it out of the city and they push it off a cliff so that it won't wander back into town. The goat is the thing that takes on all this negativity and all the violence of you. All the violence of you. All the pain of you. All the bad stuff that you do. The, 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 the goat takes it on so that you don't have to be a violent person anymore. The goat takes it on. But the lamb, the lamb is the fulfillment of the promise. And so John looks up and he says, look, the lamb of God. And the disciples would know right then. He's saying, the promise is being fulfilled now. Something good is happening the Lamb of God. Abraham promised it was going to be finished and he gave the Lamb saying it was finished and now the Lamb of God is here because God is keeping his promise to this world. I don't have the hope for you, friends, but this guy, I just lifted my head, I see him, I want you to see him too. He can fulfill the promise. So sometimes you feel like Mary. Sometimes you're pregnant and sometimes you've got all the pain that comes with being pregnant. Am I right? Sometimes you can just feel it. Like, when is life going to change? When's it going to get better? When, when, when on earth is all this pain that I keep getting hit with every single day by the same people, by the same words, by the same circumstances, over and over and over again, all the while I have this deep, seated belief inside my heart that I'm meant for something more. And then Mary births the Lamb of God. And some of you, some of you guys, I get it. You're just, you're right there. You're right there, man. You're like, when is this thing going to happen? I'm, 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 I'm clinging onto the rope, but the rope is running out of length. And I feel, like, I feel like I'm at the very end of it and I'm grasping at the little straw parts that hang out the end and, and I just feel so much like the pain is going to overtake me. But I'm telling you, you're pregnant with the holy. I'm telling you, you're pregnant with something deep. Something that's going to come out of you that all this pain is not going to be wasted because like my friend Sandy says, God doesn't waste our pain. Something's going to come out of you that's going to be fresh and it's going to be new, and it's going to be holy. And, I, and it hurts right now. And so John looks up and he sees Jesus, and he exclaims to his disciples, the one who fulfills the promise has come. The one who offers endless hope has arrived. The Lamb of God is here. Uh. <laughs> the Lamb of God is here. You don't got to lean on me. And with those words, the Lamb of God and them knowing what it means, John basically says, go to him. Don't follow me anymore. 
follow the Lamb. And that sounds good, but it's a wake-up call to many of us, friends. It's time that you understand something about God's kingdom. Do you want to understand something about God's kingdom? You are not meant to have a following. You are not meant to draw people unto yourself. You are not meant to have the right answers, and you're not meant to be anyone's savior. You are meant to lift your head, take your eyes off of yourself, look up and see the Lamb of God, and send people running in the right direction. You can't fulfill their promises, you're going to get bored. You can't fulfill your pro- their promises, you got your own junk. But you can point them in the right direction and you can land them in the place of love where the one who loves them can meet them where they're at. That, my friends, is all you can do. And at a deeper level, you're not meant to follow anyone but the Lamb. You're not meant to find the next hip YouTube preacher and share all of his sermons on your Facebook page. You're meant to lead people to the one who keeps their promises. Another transitional drink. Because I'm about to start yelling more. I hope I've done a good job of channeling my inner gospel preacher. So today I have a story for some of you. Maybe for all of you. Maybe it's just for some of you. But this is a story for those of us who've been let down by people. This is a story for those of us who've been broken by the world. And this is a story for those of us who've been left without hope. This is a story for those of us who can feel the pain, but the child hasn't come yet. It's a story for those of us who the pain is so intense that you need something to come out of it. You need it to not be wasted, but you feel like you're going to lose your mind if something doesn't happen soon. This is a story for you. And because I like chess... It's a story about chess. Um, There's a painting. Let's put that up there. That was painted by a man named Morris Reich. And you can tell by the artwork that it's a very old painting. And I've heard that this painting hung in the Louvre in Paris for quite a few years. And when I heard the story about this painting, I was like, I'm going to preach about this painting. I just don't know when. And then... I realized it's going to be the next time I preach. Because it's awesome. This painting hung in the Louvre for Paris for many years. And it depicts Satan on the left looking at a very stressed out young man. Grabbing his forehead. Thinking what can I do as the angel of God looks down on him with pity. Because the devil appears to have him cornered, to have taken over most of the board. And the title of the painting is Checkmate. 
And people walked by this painting for years, looking at it and understanding what it would mean for this young man to wager his soul with the devil for a game of chess. To go into this game so confidently, to go into this life so confidently, knowing I have promise and I have things inside of me that God has meant for me to do, but then to start the game and realize very quickly that he was outmatched, outnumbered, outmanned, to quote Hamilton. That he is losing. And that in a very short time, he will have lost his soul because it's almost checkmate. Strange thing about this painting, though, is that in 1888, a article came out that, that was written in the Columbia Chess Chronicle in 1888. And it told the story of a man named Paul Morphy, who was in the museum looking at the paintings. And Paul Morphy stopped at Checkmate, and he just stared at it for a while. His friends gathered around him. He kept staring, kept looking, almost as if he's like studying that board, which would be very difficult to study. And after a while of staring and like ignoring all the other paintings, Paul Morphy says, very matter-of-factly, I think I can take that young man's position and win. And everyone around him is like, what? And so they set up the game. And Paul Morphy sits down in the position of the disheveled, beaten down, beat up young man who has been ripped apart by every move the devil has made in this game. And Paul Morphy wins. And, and we learn that the painting was titled wrong. Because when Paul looked at the painting, he didn't, he didn't look at it like others. He didn't, he didn't pass by it and say, yeah, man, don't play a game like that. Don't play roulette with your life with the devil. Don't get involved in something risky like that. Don't jump into something, something of that magnitude because you're going to lose the difference between Paul and those people was Paul was a chess grandmaster. He was a grandmaster. One of the few in the world to be known as one of the most elite chess players to ever play the game of chess in the history of this world. And it's as if Paul bends down and he whispers to the young man, I got this. I got this. And it's as if the young man lifts his head and looks up and says, the Lamb of God is here. And he's going to finish this game for me. I have had all of the pieces stacked against me. I have had every move in my life stacked against me. 
It was like since it began, I was given a shovel and just told to dig, and every choice I made was another mark in the dirt until the pit was big and until I'm in the bottom of it and there's no way out and the angels are looking down on me with pity and the devil is looking at me like he's got me and like no matter what I do, no matter how I try, no matter what kind of effort I put into this thing, it's going to be checkmate. And then the grand master steps in. Say amen. Amen. Then the grand master steps in. And he says, I am Paul Morphy, the Lamb of God. And I'm going to step in and I'm going to finish this game for you. Get out of the way. You need only to be still. Can you imagine the moment that young man gets to climb out of the painting? And the Lamb of God, the Grand Master, gets to step in and take a seat and look at the board. Because the reality of this game is that Black had a move that was going to put White in check. And after Black had that move that was going to put White in check, White had one more move. And it was the king. The king had one more move. And then the rest of the moves were going to work out. But the man felt so cornered. He felt so backed in. He felt so pressured by all of the darkness in his life. That he had surrendered his fate. Although he knows he's pregnant with something that is holy. Although he knows that at the beginning of time, God put something in him that is supposed to come out and bless the world. He's ready to give up. Because he feels like his checkmate. But the king had one more move. I could whisper it. I could yell it. But the king had one more move. The Grand Master knew the king had one more move. And I want to tell you this, friends. If the king has one more move, the game's not over. There we go. If the king has one more move, your life ain't over. I don't care how deep the pit is. I don't care if there are lions in the pit. I don't care if it's a nine-foot-tall giant standing in front of you or if the Egyptians are barreling down your direction and there's nowhere to run because there's a sea behind you that if you run into, you will drown. You might be out of moves, but if the king has one more move, the game ain't over. If the king has one more move, the game ain't over. You hearing me? Now, I know this is not Pastor Ryan's Pentecostal charismatic church. uh, But it's the same reality. If the king has one move, if the king has one more move, do you get the analogy? Do I need to point up or something? If the king has another move, he's going to step in, he's going to take your place, he's going to take the game, he's going to win the game, and you're going to birth that thing that's holy. You're going to birth that thing that's holy. And I know it. I know the river well enough that there are people here who believe that no matter what they do, 
no matter how hard they try, something's going to just sweep in and knock them off their feet again. And I know how that feels, friends. I know it. And you know how it feels. But as Egypt is barreling down on Israel, as Egypt is coming in hard and the Red Sea is on this side, and Israel's at that chessboard, and they've got nothing left. God comes in. He sits down in their place. And he says, be still. Be still. We can cheer that the king has one more move. We can cheer that the game's not over. And we can walk out this door and feel so beaten down that all of it just flies out of our ears. But God has one command for you. In that moment when you just, you want to get up and you want to run out because everything I said isn't true for you. Be still. Let God step in. Friends, that's my inner gospel preacher. Be still. Be still. Thanks for listening. For more information, check us out online at theriver.info.